Let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter 4, verses 12. Uh, Since it is a rather long passage, I'll read it as you follow along on the board. Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good Purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed. About you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again, we come before you this morning with open ears and hearts and minds to this wonderful passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a rich feast from your word this morning, a blessing and a a a glimpse into your heart for each and every one of us that we would become as Paul, that we would understand that it is only by faith in Christ Jesus that we are righteous at all, that we have any standing before you and that there is nothing that we may add to that, nothing that we may sweeten the deal with but it is Christ and Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, that we come to know you, that we have any righteousness of whatsoever to speak of. Father, we pray that as we look into this passage that we would be a church that is grounded in the gospel so that in return we may be a church that will be formed and shaped by the gospel not by the worldly ideas of success or the, any ideas of righteousness we may have. So Lord, as we come into this text this morning, speak for your servants are listening. Lord, may we apply it. May we walk out of here knowing that we have feasted richly from your word. Move me aside that your spirit may speak to your people. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We have, throughout this study in Galatians, uh, you have probably noticed that Galatians is not always the easiest book to read. It's not always the easiest book to accept. Sometimes it it hits us right in our feelers, hits us right in the areas where we think that we have righteousness of our own to brag on. 
We have seen Paul the debater. We have seen Paul the theologian. We have seen Paul the arguer. Uh, Tim, maybe you've taken some tips from Paul in your court cases over, uh, over this time. Uh, we've seen Paul the reasoner. But today we're going to see Paul the pastor. Today we're going to get a glimpse of Paul's heart. He's going to use words that, in all honesty, Paul doesn't normally use. As you saw down in the bottom, he referred to the uh, Galatian Christians as my little children, my babies, my young ones. I think this is about the only time that Paul uses that language. John uses it a lot, but not Paul. In fact, uh, about the only time we really see more of Paul's heart uh, in his writings, such, uh, such fervor and such affection and such uh, begging even is in 2 Corinthians. That's about, uh, we see more of Paul's heart for ministry there probably than anywhere else, but we see a glimpse of it here in this passage. Paul, in the, in the, in the very first uh, verse of this passage today, he says, brothers, I entreat you. That, that, is, a, that is a strong word. He is, he is begging you, brothers, like, like a mother who is begging her child to please stop a current course of action or you're gonna get hurt. Please stop this. This is not going to end to your spiritual good. I am begging you, please stop I told you that I was uh, attending kind of an online pastor's conference uh, during the course that we weren't meeting and, and one of the guys said something that kind of stuck with me. He said, you know, a lot of the problem in churches today is that we're too prideful to beg. We become too prideful to beg people to come. We become too prideful to beg people to, to warn them of the danger that is coming to their souls if they don't come to Jesus Christ and if they don't hold on to the gospel. Paul wasn't too proud to beg. He's entreating, he's begging them, and he's saying, become as I am. We're gonna say more about that in a minute, but, but what we see is, is, is that there is no contradiction between a, a mind that is hot for God and a heart that is hot for both God and his people. There is no contradiction here. There is no dead orthodoxy here. There is no frozen chosen here. There is no us for and no more mentality here. There is a pastor who is longing for his people, begging his people come back to the faithfulness of the gospel because it is the gospel that creates and maintains the church. And that is it. There's nothing more. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter that upon this rock, speaking of Peter's confession, upon this rock, I will build my church. It is the gospel that builds the church and creates the church. The church does not create the gospel. The gospel creates the church. And so it is no coincidence, it is no surprise that the stronger a church is grounded in the gospel, the stronger that church will be. I've said since I arrived here, I've been here, I've been here going on eight years. And I believe it was my very first Sunday that I told you that when I came that I have no desire to build a big church. I wanna build a strong church. And we'll let God take care of the results of that. And I pray that I've been faithful to that. 
Not always effective, but, pre- but faithful. Today, see, we tend to look for strength and culturally define success. We, we have an edifice complex, if you will. We want to build big edifices and we're, we're concerned about big buildings and the programs that fill them. We're concerned about things like budgets and numbers and all of that. Laodicea was concerned about all of those things. They were prideful in all of those things. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm about to vomit you out because you've missed the main point. Instead, the church that is created by the gospel must be shaped. It must be formed by the gospel. Galatia had lost that shape. They had lost that form. They had lost their gospel beauty and they had traded it in for the rags and the filth of legalism. They were going back to slavery of the law and Paul was begging them, please stop, come back to me. It's a very strong, don't trade the gospel. And through Paul this morning, Paul, uh, God is inviting us to examine our hearts, examine our hearts and ask the question, are we being formed by the gospel? Are we being shaped by the gospel? Those who are created by the gospel must be formed by the gospel. And it's also a litmus test. It's also kind of a a heat test, if you will, a plumb line, if you will, in which we may measure ourselves. How, how are we being formed by the gospel or have we made subtle compromises here and there? Has it been over time, have our lives, uh, are we subtly compromising the gospel in our lives and moving back toward a form of self-righteousness, a form of legalism? How can we tell? Well, there's three characteristics that Paul gives us this morning. And to be honest with you, I don't think I'm gonna get through them. (laughs) So we'll probably divide it up into two. I'll I'll watch the time, because you guys know I'm really good at that. (laughs) That got a laugh. So so anyway, we're gonna look at three characteristics this morning of what it means to be formed by the gospel. And, and we're gonna see, I hope so, that, that as we have gone through the book, we've seen Paul's arguments. It's been very heady. It's been very doctrinal. But I want you to see that there is no contradiction between that and a deep and abiding love, heart-warmed, loving people of God. In fact, you will find that real love for each other comes from the gospel. And we're gonna see that as we move through here and as we look at these three characteristics that what is a church, what is a people, what is a person who is shaped and formed by the gospel, what are they gonna look like? And what are three characteristics that are going to define them? And number one, we're gonna see that it will involve fellowship. It will involve fellowship. Look at verses 12 and 14. You've already read verse 12. He says, I entreat you become as I am for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Now, I wanna stop right there because uh, as we come to look at what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I want you to remember, he's backing up to when Paul first came to Galatia. Now, he says here that it was because of a bodily ailment. Now, There are all kinds of ideas of what that might've been. Uh, There's a surprisingly really strong argument for maybe he caught malaria on the trip. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, Fact of the matter is, is that we don't know. 
But I want you to see how he's going to form this argument when he says, become as I am, as I have become as you are. What is he talking about? Look at how he moves on uh, into this text and says what it means to become as he was. And remember what it was like that when you were clear on the gospel, remember the fellowship that you had. Remember the power of the gospel that you had that created that fellowship. How did it do that? Because in the gospel, we embrace weakness. We embrace weakness. You see, that's how the gospel creates fellowship because the gospel teaches us to embrace weakness. We don't know what this was, this bodily ailment. Was it his thorn in the flesh from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12? It seems, as you read on later down the text, it may have had something to do with his eyes. You don't know. But here's his point. He says, do you remember when the gospel came to you? The power it had. I want you to understand that when the gospel came to you at first, it did not come because of Paul's strength. There was no rhetorical power that, that Paul had in himself, no wisdom that Paul had in himself. But when the gospel came to Galatia, when the power of the gospel was displayed in Galatia, it wasn't displayed, it didn't come through Paul's strength, it came as a result of his weakness. He was sick. If you read in Acts 13, you can read about when the Galatians accepted the gospel at first and that they rejoiced, in fact, uh, in fact, let's turn there. Acts chapter 13 and verses 48 and 49. And when the Gentiles heard that salvation had come to them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That was not through Paul's strength. It was through his weakness. He was sick. In fact, he might have even been a little physical, deformed. Paul knew that it was in his weakness that the gospel goes forth, and that's why he says, speaking of his thorn in the flesh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, here's what he says, and, and I've abbreviated the verse, but he says, but therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell, may rest upon me. See, the gospel teaches us to embrace our weaknesses, not boast in our strengths. So often we want to boast in our budgets. We want to boast in our buildings. We want to boast in our successes. We want to boast in all of this. No, the gospel says boast in your weakness. Boast in the things that you don't see that you have any power in because that is when the power of God really comes out. The gospel teaches us to embrace weakness and also to practice hospitality. To practice hospitality. And in verse 14, he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, he doesn't use the words here, but what he's talking about here is what the Bible refers to as hospitality. When we think of hospitality today, what do we think of? Hotels, right? <laughs> we think of uh, bringing people into our home, feeding them, deal, feeding them meals and stuff like that. 
And it certainly includes that, but the, but the New Testament concept of, of hospitality is actually much broader than that. It's actually a lot broader than that. In fact, the, the word translated hospitality, it actually means love of strangers. Love of strangers, welcoming of those who come in. We welcome people into our lives, even at a cost. Even though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me, you did not despise me, but you welcomed me, is what Paul says. What does he mean by that? Well, the word trial in the ESV is, 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 is somewhat tame. The, the word is actually temptation. I see Art looking at his NASB back there to see if that's correct. The word is actually talking about temptation. And why would Paul's trial have been a temptation to them? Because you need to understand that back in the ancient culture, they would have seen that, that anybody coming in claiming to be a spokesman for God, and yet they were going through some kind of physical malady, they were going through some kind of physical weakness, they were going through some kind of sickness, the ancient culture uh, would, have, would have interpreted that as a divine displeasure. They would have interpreted that as a punishment. The Jews certainly did it. In fact, you can see in the book of Job, uh, that's exactly what Job's friends assumed, that Job must have done something wrong. And they have long, elaborate speeches and they tell you all about it. But the ancient culture was no different. You may remember when, when Paul was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and in verses three or four, he's gathering firewood and what happens? A poisonous snake bites him and I mean, he's literally just standing there with a the snake hanging from his hand. I would have died. But anyway, not from the poison, just from the sheer terror of what I was seeing. But what did the island people of Malta, what did they assume? Ah, he survived the shipwreck only to be killed. He must be a murderer. Something bad happened. Gods must be punishing him. That's what they assumed. That's how the entire ancient culture thought. And this, beloved, is how law righteousness leads us to think. I do right. God blesses me materially. If something is happening bad in my life, it must be because I'm being punished for something. Think about that. Think about the Think about the danger of that. If I'm blessed, I become prideful. If I got a lot of trials in my life, I despair. It's deadly. But when we are attempting to earn righteousness, we, we simply cannot think any other way than that. I mean, that's how, that's, how, uh, that's how law righteousness teaches us to think. And when we are attempting to earn righteousness, beloved, we will naturally focus on our strengths. We'll focus on what we're good at, won't we? We'll focus on what we do well. And those things that we don't do so well, well, we just kind of tend to ignore those. And this is how it always works. And what happens when we start focusing on our strengths? Our strengths become a source of by which we criticize others. Happens every time. In fact, uh, you may remember in Luke chapter 18, verse nine, when Jesus tells the parable, 
He says, he told them this parable to some, watch this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what's the result of that? They treated others with contempt. You can bet that any time we treat others with contempt, you can bet that there's self-righteousness somewhere under the surface, somewhere lurking in our heart. Paul's condition was a temptation for them to scorn and despise him, to reject his message. But the, but the, but the thing was is that the gospel changed their hearts. And at great cost, at great temptation to them, they took Paul in and they welcomed him, not only as an angel of God, they welcomed him as if he were Christ Jesus himself. Let me ask you a question. When we walk into the church, and I understand we can't do it right now because of social distancing and all that stuff, but do we welcome people as Jesus in disguise? Do we do that? Do we welcome people as if they are an angel of God? Regardless of what areas in their life that they may be weak on that we're strong in. You may have heard the, uh, the urban, it's not really an urban legend, but I've seen it on social media. The pastor who uh, dressed up like a homeless guy out of his church and sat around. Uh, by the way, the, uh, the social media version, the church didn't do well at all. The real version was actually Pastor James McDonald in uh, Chicago, and the church did awesome. Many prayed for him. Many brought him food. Several offered to take him somewhere. Several offered to put him up in a hotel. Many people asked him to come inside. The church did awesome, unlike the social media version that typically comes out. You say, I sure am glad my pastor doesn't do that. Well, First of all, I don't think you guys would really fall for it, okay? I mean, really, in all honesty, you guys be walking in, uh, hey, heads up, Randy's up there dressed like a hobo, okay? Uh, don't fall for that. <laughs> but not only that, beloved, the fact is, is that we do it every week. We do it every week. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, here's what he says, that whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Every time we receive anyone, the measure by which we receive them is the measure by which we receive Jesus. The question is, is that when we come into contact with strangers, when we come into contact, maybe even with people who are different than we are, do we treat them as we would treat Jesus Christ? Jesus says, if you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done to me also. Jesus didn't ask Saul on the Damascus road, why are you persecuting my church? No, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. You see, how we treat the church is how we treat Jesus. And you see, how we treat strangers is how we treat Jesus. How we treat others is how we treat Jesus. And so what are we measuring our faith by? Are we, are we measuring by our, our love of strangers? Are we, how are we gonna share the gospel with people if we don't show love for them? If they don't see that, that we are a, a loving people and we are, but beloved, that, that love must not only be directed inward at ourselves, it must be directed outward. And the people must see that we are a people who are defined and who practice the love of Jesus. We, we love everyone who comes. 
Paul desperately loved the Galatians. You can see that here. He absolutely loved them. So how how do we welcome people? What is the measure of our fellowship? What is the measure of it? And how can we build it? That's how Paul gets into the second part, which I think is about as far as we're gonna get today. In verses 15 through 17, he says that someone who's formed by the gospel will not only be formed by fellowship, but as a direct result, they will be formed by truth. They'll be formed by truth. Look what he says in verse 15. He, he, he desperately cries out. He says, guys, we had, you, you welcomed me as Christ himself. What happened? What changed? In fact, he says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You had such a sacrificial love for me. Don't you remember that when you were clear on the gospel, the fellowship that we enjoyed, don't you remember the intense love you had for me? Don't you remember the intense love you had for one another? What happened? What happened to that? I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor in Oklahoma, um, the group, they, they had just become so clear on the gospel, so clear on, on grace, and, and just uh, fell in love with one another. Just fell in love. It was such a tight group. That tends to happen over church camp, over the summer. But then school started. And then all the clicks of school started again. And then all of the Different things happened there. And I remember we were actually going on a trip somewhere. It was about November. And, and one of the teens said, you know, we were so close over the summer and now we're just, we're just people in a van again. What happened? My response was, well, you know, that didn't have to happen. Didn't have to, but it did. What happened was, was that they left the gospel. What happened was, was that they got sidetracked on other things. They got distracted. And here we see the danger of abandoning the gospel, the real danger. We see the danger of it, that, there, it, that the gospel must be the priority. The gospel, the truth must be the priority in our church. Look, you say, where do you get that from? Well, look in verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? When they were clear concerning the gospel, they had welcomed Paul as Christ himself, disfigured by illness and all. But now they gotten a taste of the flattery of self-righteousness and now they, have, they were turning against Paul. They had gotten a taste of what it's like to feel like that they are the captain of their own ship, that they are the master of their own fate. They had gotten a taste of the flattery that comes with self-righteousness. And now Paul, by telling them the truth, was becoming their enemy. It's a sad, sad thing when that happens. You know, for Paul, the temptation might have been for him to lessen his argument. The temptation might have been for Paul to alter his message, to try to win back his favor, to sacrifice, to sacrifice truth for the sake of peace, to bring them back together, to, uh, to, to, to mix in the medicine with a little honey, you know? Just try to, try to flatter them back, try to win their affection back. And then later on, he can try to curry back their favor. He might've been tempted to do that 
The problem was is that the same, the same message that saved their soul was now an assault to their pride. That was the problem. And Paul was not willing to compromise the gospel for the sake of fellowship. And beloved, we need to learn from that. Without the truth of God being front and center at the church, we do not have fellowship. At best, we have civility. That's it. You can't, you can't be real. You can't be authentic when the best you can do is civility. You can't confess your sins to one another as James commands us to do and you have to hide. You have to come in church with mask of righteousness and convince everybody that we're okay. Beloved, you can, and, and, I, and I love how this American Gospel documentary puts it. Uh, one one uh, teenager, in fact, I guess he's in college now. He looks pretty young to me, but that's because I'm getting old. Um, he, uh, he, but he talks about how he grew up in church and how he says, you know, you can be in a church and you can hear the gospel, you can accept the gospel, but then you can work your tail off convincing everybody that you're a good person. And we can do that, can't we? We can be confessionally clear on the gospel and yet functionally working our tail off to convince everybody that we're okay. And there is no, there is no greater threat to fellowship, true fellowship, than that. We have to be pretenders. Paul says, don't do it. Come back. Please don't destroy Paul loved the Galatians, and you can see that in this text. He loved them as himself, but he was not willing to compromise the truth of the gospel in order to do it. The truth is, if you compromise the gospel in order to win someone, you're not really loving them. Faithful are the wounds of a friend better than the kisses of an enemy. And beloved, if someone is compromising the gospel in your life, make no mistake, they are the enemy of your soul. They don't love you, they love themselves. And all they want is your, is your affection. Now, is that necessarily bad? No, not necessarily bad. But if we don't love, but if we don't love the truth first, then fellowship will suffer. It will always suffer. It can't do anything but. And so Paul says, if I become your enemy by telling you the truth, beloved, Paul was not called to be popular, he was called to be faithful. And as a church, we are not called to be popular. We are called to be faithful. And make no mistake, when we're faithful, we're gonna make some people mad. You better believe it. We're gonna make them mad. Just like Paul was making the Galatians mad here. We're, go we're going to. Jesus made people mad. But that's what we're called to do. Not in a, not in a selfish and, and 
way that is offensive, you know, don't be a jerk in the name of Christ. You know, that's, don't be that. We're not talking about that. But speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, yes. But speaking the truth in love. And, and part of that, the flip side of that, is that there's gonna have to be discernment. It's that there's gonna have to be discernment in the church. Our last verse of the morning, that's about as far as we can get. Verse 17, oh, beloved, know this verse. Know this verse. Have this verse close to your heart. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may, may make much of them. There you have the method and you have the motivation of every false teacher and every legalist who has ever lived. They make much of you. It carries the idea of showing and expressing serious interest in someone. They're pursuing them intently. It's like a man who is courting a woman to marry her, dating a woman to marry her. He's courting her and, and, and they're showing, pursuing them intently with all, all interest. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, he doesn't want to be pursued, right? Of course we want to be pursued, we're gonna see that in, in verse 18, that's actually a good thing. We, we should be pursuing everyone as Christ pursued us. That's actually a good thing. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, don't be fooled. They are pursuing you. They are, they are showing such interest in you, but it's for no good purpose. What is the underlying motivation You know, cults are often amazing at how they show affection for one another. In fact, most of the time someone goes to a cult, it's not because of their bizarre theology is great, it's because of the affection and friendship that they get. In fact, beloved, I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you this too. You know, there was a study one time where asking why in the world is the homosexual culture raising so much and the reason why is because of all the acceptance and the love that they find within the culture. It's not necessarily that they want to pursue the lifestyle, but it's because of the love and acceptance they get. They're pursuing them. They show interest in them, but for no good purpose. No, there are two desires here. What's the first desire? They shut, they want to shut you out. They want to block the door of salvation. Yes, they are knocking on the door of your heart, but they want to close it behind you between you and Jesus Christ. They want to shut, out, shut you out from the people of God. And notice what they will do one way or the other is that even though they are so affectionate, even though they are so good at that, the one thing that they will never do, that, excuse me, the one thing they will always do is that they will divorce your dependence upon the word of God. They do it every time. They will not teach the scriptures they will not teach what God's word says. Oh, they'll read a verse and then they'll, you know, preach and rant and rave and, and go wherever they want to with it and make you think that that's teaching. But they will not actually give you an accurate, grounded and exegetical understanding of God's word. They can't do it because if they did, it would reveal them for who they are. And so they don't teach. 
And that's the one, and that's the one common ingredient you see, whether it is legalistic fundamentalists, whether it is word of faith teachers on TBN, whether it is uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the one thing they all do is they say is they divorce you from a dependence upon God's word. Oh, if you can't find this in the Bible, don't worry. I got it from the highest source. I got it from God himself. If you can't find it in the Bible, eh, just trust me. Somebody tells you that, run, run. They wanna remove you from God's grace, lock you outside so that when you are outside, you will bang on their door to let you in. That's what they're trying to do. And everyone does this, every cult does this. They will remove your dependence on the word wine, number two, so that you will bang on their door so that you may make much of them. Paul is telling the Galatians, they want you to make much of them. They are shutting you out so that you will bang on their door. That's what they want. Second Peter chapter two, verses one through three. It's too late to get you there, but... He talks about the false teachers and he says, in their greed, they will exploit you with flattering words. They're exploiters. They're greedy. They flatter. They scratch itching ears. That's why they're growing so big. And they're using the church and they're using God's people to bring about, to get them what they want. It could be a lot of things. It could be money. A lot of times it's money. Heard a preacher the other day proclaiming to his church that uh, he, is, he, is, he, is, uh, uh, he is trusting the Lord for a $65 million airplane. And if I want to do it, you can't tell me I can't. By the way, if you go to the Word of Faith churches, if you go to their congregations, even the ones here in town, you will notice their parking lots are not full of BMWs. The only people getting rich off that heretical teaching is the teachers. That should tell you something. It could be position. It could be authority. It could be respect. Diotrephes was one of these. Look at 3 John verse 9. What did he want? I have written something to the church by Diotrephes, watch this, who likes to put himself first. He's shutting them out so that they may make much of him. He wants authority. He wants reputation. He wants respect. They come to the church in order to get the respect that they're missing, maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe whatever, but they come to church to get the respect that they're missing everywhere else. And they want to shut you out so that you'll give it to them. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't fall for that. Paul doesn't want any of that. Instead, look at verse 19, and we can't get there this week. But he says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. What? Until Christ is formed in you. That's what the gospel wants. That's what the true gospel wants. I want Christ to be formed in you. My soul is in anguish until Christ is formed in you.
By the way, that is one of the most powerful statements of biblical ministry and sanctification in the entire Bible. If you wanna know more about it, you gotta come next week. But as we come to a close today, beloved, let me just ask you, let's examine our hearts this morning. I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And just ask yourself, what are you being formed by? Is it the gospel? Or is it a desire for something else? I promise you're being, desi- you're being formed by something. It has a role in everything that we do. Every time we sin, every time we do good, it has a role. And beloved, understand that none of us are perfect here. You say, well, Randy, what do I do? Well, first of all, if you don't know Christ as your savior, if you've never been born by the gospel, you certainly can't be formed by the gospel. So I wanna invite you this morning to examine your hearts and ask yourself, do you truly believe in Christ alone, by faith alone for the gospel? Or are you merging some kind of works in that? Are you merging your own righteousness? And just like the Galatians, it's easy to get off track, beloved. Galatians had not been Christians that long. And sometimes we can be off track for years. There were many years I was off track. And I remember how I tried to get everyone around me manipulated, passive-aggressively trying to get them to affirm me and how good of a person I was. I got off track. And by God's grace, he brought me back. Not perfectly, it's still a work in my heart, just like it is yours. But I'm gonna ask you where you are this morning. Are you coming to church to be formed by Christ? Are you coming to church to get what your heart's truly after? Have you come to Christ to get God? Or have you come to Christ to get what your heart truly wants? Our Father, we acknowledge our weaknesses before you. Lord, I've seen in my own heart this week areas where I am still, still not where I need to be. But only because of the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for me, shed his blood for my sins, Lord, that they are both covered and that by your grace, I am repenting and trusting you more. Father, I pray this morning would be a morning of repentance. I pray that we would look at our church, we would look at our lives as a plumb line of how we are being formed by the gospel. Are we we seeing greater fellowship? Are we seeing greater truth? Or are we seeing just civility? And are we seeing a willingness to compromise the truth for the sake of peace? And as we're gonna see next week, Lord, are we seeing true ministry driven by true motivation? 
Father, may, we, may you open our hearts, wound us that you may heal us, break us, that you may put us back together. Ask us trifold, do you love me? And with Peter, may we be broken. Lord, you know all things. You know we love you. Let's stand and sing this wonderful hymn of reflection together.